Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. No, Gavin. No. No amount of mascot magic could ever make Mr. Bumfaddle's eel-flavored crisp sound appetizing. Ass. The following podcast contains... You cannot say filth, flying filth, flying filth in front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you found yourself sexually attracted to the 7-Up Dot, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 315, Can't Avoid That Noid, edition of the show, where we talk about how brand mascots took over the world in the 1980s. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Gavi, the lovable producer, new to the WTH merch store. This plus story of our beloved producer, Gavin, is perfect for you, your kids, or your pets. Rendered in laser-measured 3D modeling, Gavi captures the contours and shape of producer Gavin with 73% less smugness by volume. It is soft and squishy in the middle, just like the real producer Gavin. And on this adorable plush, the cold, lifeless eyes of producer Gavin are far less disturbing. If you're searching for just the right way to support What the Hell Were You Thinking, the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network, you need Gavi, the lovable producer. Gavi is hypoallergenic, all-natural fibers, flame-resistant, and treated with a special non-toxic scent, realistic reproducing the aroma of the real Gavin, Earl Grey tea and suppressed rage. Act now and get 20% off anatomically correct Dave doll with your order of Gavi, the lovable producer, from SeltzerKings.com. Drummer better than Neil Peart. It ain't easy being cheesy. My mom, not a morning person. Indeed, if it were up to her, night could just bump straight into noon and we could all get on with our business. Let's go. We got shit to do. So that myth of, you know, moms being up in the morning, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, making breakfast for the kids every goddamn morning because breakfast is the, uh, the most important meal of the day. Yeah, that's not happening in the Bledsoe household. You woke up, you fed yourself, and then you got the fuck out of the house. I mean, mom would cook breakfast on occasion, but Tuesdays were not a fucking occasion. It was Tuesday. Get your fucking Apple Jacks and get your ass on the bus. That being said, she was pretty liberal about my sister and I and what we chose for breakfast. When it came to our choice, it was not uh, part of a nutritious breakfast. That was so important. But the whole goddamn breakfast thing that she just wanted out of her hair. She figured we kids knew better than what she did about what we wanted and pretty much bought what we asked for. As children, our flowcharts for cereal decisions were neither complex nor scientific. It was based entirely upon three standards. Was it sweet? Was it Technicolor? And did it have a toy inside that the two of us could fight over? Yes, yes, and yes. Beyond that, there wasn't much to it. 
I guess the serial mascot might have played some small role in the choice. I mean, I was always particular to the subtle, lazy racism of Lucky Charms. Magically delicious now, bitch! And my sister preferred the subtle cruelty of the tricks rabbit, constantly being denied the only thing that could give some small shred of meaning to his sad and empty life. Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. Now I'm quite sure we were as deeply influenced by branding as anyone else was as kids. I just don't think of it like that. I was aware that certain cartoon figures or terrifying clowns represented certain products, but I don't think I ever wanted McDonald's because the fucking clown told me to. I hate clowns. I wanted McDonald's because the fries were fucking delicious, and if we had McDonald's, pretty good chances were my mom wasn't going to have me do dishes that night, meaning I get to get on with the important work of watching primetime television in the 1970s. And then there's Maud! Then there's Maud! And then there's Maud! And then there's Maud! And then there's Maud! And then there's Maud! That uncompromising, enterprising, anything but tranquilizer, right on, Maud! I will always take every opportunity to play the mod theme. But the creations of these cartoon mascots fucking exploded in the 1980s, and now they are deeply embedded in what we like to think of as our American culture. Americans fucking love mascots. We're perfectly happy to turn anything into a mascot. Even a bunch of old rich white dudes that got all pissy because a distant politician was cutting on their profits and decided to declare rebellion over it. Oh, is that what happened? That is exactly what happened. Everything else is just a mascotization of history. And it didn't even take long. Shit, George Washington was turning up, turning himself into our national mascot before we even had a nation showing up in his uniform and shit. It didn't take 50 years before the founders were fully transformed from actual human beings who owned other human beings into sanitized caricatures of heroic leaders. It is hardly the first time in history that has happened, but I don't think any other country has done it as quickly and as completely as us. But it's marketing that we truly made ourselves the master of the mascots. And we've been doing it for a long damn time, like I said. But I wanted to start with cereal mascots because that's where all brand beans truly began. In 1877, on the front of a box of breakfast cereal. Quaker Oats. It's the right thing to do. Despite the resemblance, Wilford Brimley was not the original Quaker Oats dude. In fact, I'm the exact same age as Wilford Brimley was when he began pitching for Quaker Oats back in the 1990s. Yeah, you look it. Wikipedia tells me, quote, in 1870, Ferdinand Schumacher founded the German Mills American Oatmeal Company in Akron, Ohio, and Stewart founded the North Star Mills in Ontario, Canada. In 1870, Schumacher ran his first known cereal advertisement in the Akron Beacon Journal newspaper in 1877. The Quaker Mill Company of Ravenna, Ohio was founded. The name was chosen when Quaker Mill partner Henry Seymour found an encyclopedia article on Quakers and decided that the qualities described, integrity, honesty, and purity, provided the appropriate identity for the company's oat product. Quaker Mill Company held the trademark on the Quaker name in Ravenna, Ohio on September 4, 1877, and Henry Seymour of Quaker Mill Company applied for the first tra trademark of a breakfast cereal, a, a man in Quaker garb, that same year, unquote. Now, you might think that these two fellows must have been of the Quaker faith. What with them so blatantly used the long-established reputation and imagery of a Quaker like that? You would think so. 
<laughs> of course they weren't. And it's been bugging the Quakers for about a century now. The Quaker Friends have twice protested the Quaker name being used for advertising campaigns seen as promoting violence. And in 1990, some Quakers started using a letter-writing campaign after Quaker Oats advertisement depicted Popeye as a Quaker man who used violence against aliens, sharks, and Bluto. Later that decade, more letters were sparked by Power Rangers toys, including in Captain Crunch cereals. And there we have the first rule of a good brand mascot. Have it as have as little to do with the product as possible, and even less to do with the reality of whatever persona or creature the mascot purports to be. Now, unlike the Quaker guy, the sun-made raisin girl, she was a real person, Lorraine Collette, and tangentially associated with actual razor production, working part-time seeding and packing for SunMade. That was until a raisin grower executive spotted her drying her hair wearing a red bonnet like the, that the SunMade girl sports on the raisin box, and she was hired on the spot to help promote Big Raisin. A few years later, the iconic painting of her was crafted, and she became the face of raisins. SunMade is literally named after the painting of this woman. And that's the end. What a sweet story. <laughs> no, it isn't. Lorraine made decent money for her work and took a shot at acting, didn't take off, spent the remainder of her life in Fresno, dying at the age of 90 in 1983. So why am I telling you about all this? Oh, that's because Sunmaid needed such a sunny mascot to distract you from all the fucking violence. <laughs> Without going too deep into it, the raisin growers in California in the 1930s actually went to war with each other over price controls on the crop. And things got so bad that the government had to force them all into joining the raisin cartel. It's not a thing. Not a thing. Oh, it absolutely was a thing. It was created by the U.S. government, and it existed until 2015 when the U.S. Supreme Court finally ruled that the whole thing was grossly illegal. But, but, Big Raisins still needed to convince you good people that raisins were not just shriveled up grapes, but tasty, delicious snacks that you should eat instead of things that taste great, like fucking candy, and a job that big requires a big fucking mascots, or in this case, four big fucking mascots. <laughs> California raisins from the California vineyards. Don't you know that I hide through the grapevine? Sounds better than what I got. From an Orlando Sentinel article in 1988, quote, Claymation characters known as the California raisins first hit stardom in September 1986, when a commercial featuring a conga line of raisins outfitted in sneakers, white gloves, and sunglasses first aired. The raisins sang and danced their way into the hearts of America to the tomb of the R&B classic, I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Less than two years later, the Raisins are stars. Their debut album went gold, signifying sales of more than 500,000 within a month of its release. Their appearance last Christmas on a CBS Christmas special won critical acclaim, including a New York Times rave, and Raisin lookalike products are being pushed nationwide by more than 50 licensees. And all in all told, the wholesale value of these Raisin spinoffs exceeds 100 million dollars unquote 
the raisins just fucking exploded into pop culture in the 1980s. There were other big mascots, but the raisins were the top of the anthropomorphic desiccated fruit pile. The raisins released an entire album and it went fucking gold. 600,000 copies sold, not 600,000 streams, literally 600,000 physical copies of Clay Raisins doing 60s and 70s soul and R&B covers and long playing album cassette and CD format. Say one thing about Americans is that they will buy anything. More from the center of the quote. However, the raisins aren't through yet. The video for Grapevine is appearing on services like MTV and VH1. There's talk of a tour already. There are serious plans for a second album and so on. But a recording career isn't the only path the Raisins are dancing down. Applause Inc., a Woodland Hills licensing firm, has lined up dozens of other license agreements for the Raisins. This year, we'll see the introduction of official Raisin costumes for Halloween, Raisin Lunch Pails, Raisin Sneakers, just like the high tops Raisins wear in the commercials, Raisin Backpacks, Raisin Pajamas, and more. That's in addition to the keychains, drinking mugs, t-shirts, and posters already on the market. There's even a warship, the USS Pyro, that has asked permission to sail with a flag waving overhead, bearing the image of, you guessed it, the California Dancing Raisins, unquote. And sometimes there would be mascot wars. Remember that infamous pink rabbit? For years, you've seen some commercials where one battery company's toys outlast the other toys. So you may have assumed their battery outlasts even Energizer batteries. Fact is, Energizer was never invited to their playoffs. And today's Energizer won't be invited either. Why? Because no battery lasts longer than Energizer. So now you know. A word to the wise. Energize. That wasn't the first pink rabbit. Remember this pink rabbit? Duracell batteries can keep all the toys and electronic games in your home running a lot longer. In fact, tests prove that after just a few hours of continuous use, regular carbon batteries wear out. But depending on the toy, Duracell batteries can last up to six times longer. So keep your toys and electronic games running longer with Duracell. The copper top battery. No regular battery looks like it or lasts like it. Duracell had been using a pink toy rabbit for years. Then Energizer just comes along, slapped on some sunglasses, big-ass flip-flop shoes, and created a fucking tsunami of branding for their battery. Completely cornered the pink battery bunny market. Is that even legal? Well, Duracell didn't think so. They sued Energizer over the copyright and trademark infringements. But by that time, the Energizer bunny had walked all over America's heart and Duracell essentially gave up on the bunny wars in an out-of-court settlement that presumably cost a shit ton of money for Energizer but allowed them to keep on... They keep going and going and going. And following in the footsteps of slapping sunglasses and giant shoes on things, 7-Up debuted spot the red well he was a spot in the seven up logo in 1987 spot took off as these things did spinning off merch t-shirts later on video games but i heard something last year in the heart of the pandemic on a podcast that i cannot find now nor confirm i might even have come across it while researching for another episode of this podcast but damn it it's stuck in my mind and i want to give it the fuck out People wanted to fuck the 7-Up dot. 
Did, did you just say... Fuck the 7-Up spot. Yeah, I did. I specifically remember hearing somewhere or something or reading about it. I can't find it anywhere that people wanted to fuck the 7-Up spot. Look, I, 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 I can't imagine that my brain, which will create a lot of things, but simply would not create the idea of fucking a red dot with shoes on it, even during the depths of the pandemic. So if any of you out there have heard anything about people being sexually attracted to the 7-Up spot, please let me know because I, I don't want to live with this alone. Speaking of mascots you'd like to fuck. It's not easy being cheesy. Cheetos cheese flavored snack. Cheese that goes crunch. 1986 gave us Chester Cheetah featuring an animated cheetah in, you guessed it, sunglasses and big shoes. Chester, definitely fuckable. Chester quickly gained mass market appeal and iconic status as folks hoovered up Chester merch like shirts, hats, branded sunglasses, and Chester Cheetah plush toys. Presumably they fucked him, but I don't know. And of course, video games in the 1990s when those things became ubiquitous. According to MASH.com, quote, there were big plans for Chester Cheetah in the early 1990s. Given the success of the animated commercials built around the mascot, the idea was to spin Chester off into his own Saturday morning cartoon for Fox Network. This plan, however, did not go over well with seven different advocacy organizations, which joined forces to create a coalition opposing Chester Cheetah's cartoons. According to a report in the New York Times, the coalition, which included such groups as Action for Children's Television and the Center for Science and the Public Interest, filed a position with the with Federal Communications Commission. The group sought a ruling that the potential series Yo, It's the Chester Cheetah Show be barred from the airwaves due to its status as a program-length commercial masquerading as entertainment, unquote. To which I can only say, Hi, have you seen fucking children's television since the 80s? But that's not a topic for this week. That's the topic for next week's show. And then there was this guy. <laughs> Annoyed hates hot quality pizza. He loves to make your hot pizza ice cold. Call Domino's Pizza and avoid the noise. We keep the cold out and all this quality in. So when you want quality pizza hot and delicious, Domino's Pizza delivers. One call does it all. By the mid-1980s, Domino's was notoriously shitty. It was a cardboard disc with ketchup and plastic pogs on top. Domino's had two real choices. They could make a better pizza. Sounds expensive. Or they could do the 80s thing and create a brand mascot that made people forget how shitty the pizza was and make money off selling the merch. Let's do that. Domino's spent a shit ton of money and what they got was the Noid. Fast Company described the Noid thusly, quote, a gibbering, pot-bellied, buck-toothed pervert squeezed into a skin-tight rabbit costume. The Noid was a Hamburglar-like character wholly devoted to laying pizza deliveries. Only Domino's Pizza, the ad campaign claimed, delivered pizzas that were Noid-proof. Avoid the Noid by ordering from Domino's and get your pizza in 30 minutes or less. God damn, dude. I mean, yeah, I'm harsh on these things, but still... That fucking is punching below the belt. Naturally enough, the Noid was a huge fucking success. People st 
storm Domino's. Not for the shitty pizza, but for the Noid merch. Stories from the time talk about delivery lines being jammed with requests not for their bland-ass pies, but queries about Noid dolls in the stores. The Noid got his eventual video game, was slated for a TV show, when the same people that complained about the Chester Cheetah got all pissy about the Noid having his own show. The Noid should still be a thing today, but that was before the incident. Ooh, two for this week. From an article on Priceonomics.com, quote, Then, right at the height of a popularity, the Noid endured perhaps the worst mascot PR in history. On January 30th, 1989, a man wielding a 357 Magnum revolver stormed into a Domino's in Atlanta, Georgia, and took two employees hostage. For five hours, he engaged in a standoff with the police, all the while ordering his hostages to make him pizzas. Before the police could negotiate with his demands, $100,000, a getaway car, and a copy of The Widow's Son, a novel about Freemasons, the two employees escaped. In the ensuing chaos, the hostage taker fired two gunshots into the establishment ceiling, was forcefully apprehended, and received charges of kidnapping and aggravated assault and theft by extortion. The assailant, a 22-year-old named Kenneth Lamar Noyd, was apparently upset about the chief's new mascot. A police officer on the scene later revealed that Noid had an ongoing feud in his mind with the owners of Domino's Pizza about the Noid commercials and thought the advertisements had specifically made fun of him. A subsequent court hearing found Noid innocent by reason of insanity and years later, 1995, Unable to shake the idea that Domino's ad campaign had intentionally targeted him, Noid committed suicide in his Florida apartment, unquote. Now, needless to say, after the original incidents, there were endless... So avoid the Noid. ...jokes, and Domino's quietly retired the Noid, though he would pop up over the years for anniversaries and special promotions, including, in fact, this year, back in April, when the Noid made an appearance for Domino's launch of a self-driving delivery robot in the near future. The Noid futilely tries to prevent the delivery of pizza in the robot car, when clearly, if he really wanted to keep the pizzas from getting to the customer, he should just walk into the store with a 357 Magnum. So many iconic brand mascots came out or blew up in the 1980s. McDonald's Moon Man Mac. Budweiser had a string of them with the frogs and Spuds McKenzie. We talked about Joe Camma, Clara Peller, the world where's the beef lady, who despite being a live human being and an actual actor, was very much the embodiment of a mascot. Long existing mascots got upgrades like Tony the Tiger or the Poppin' Fresh Doughboy, the Trix Rabbit or that rabbit for quick. There's a lot of fucking rabbits in those days. We couldn't get enough a fucking cartoon mascot selling this shit. And Gen X was perhaps the most blatantly marketed to children in the history of America. The baby boomers were targeted as teens with disposable income. But that came late in their generation's development. Gen X was basically hit from the cradle. Instead of crafting advertising to sell to parents, Madison Avenue sold to the kids, and the kids did the begging and wheedling and crying to get the products bought by the parents because they felt guilty about leaving us alone for 38 hours a day. Be that product breakfast cereal or Star Wars action figures, by the time my generation became adults, we were so thoroughly jaded with all of that advertising trying to sell a ship, 
we became really hard to market to for about a decade. It took rethinking how to hook us. Advertising got strange and really quirky for a few years until the millennial generation got big enough to displace Gen X and then the market Madison Avenue could fall back on more tried and two track tactics, which by and large worked, which is why every brand is on Twitter now being very whatever it is they're doing on Twitter. These brand Twitters are just being the contemporary version of a cartoon mascot, except with 280 characters and memes. And it shouldn't surprise anyone that the children of the boomers are susceptible to this very same techniques that worked on their parents. And I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't always like this. I mean, the Kool-Aid man have been busted through the wall since the early 60s. And cutesy animated characters like Speedy Alka-Seltzer or Mr. Clean going around since the 50s. In the 70s, the Tidy Bowl Man, a dude who literally had his boat on the shitter. Yeah, okay, yeah, they only showed him in the tank. But you know when they flushed that tank, that bowl went right down into the bowl. The dude might as well have been sailing on a turd. So yeah, it had been going on for a long time. And a company having a cartoon mascot is a nice, safe, inexpensive way to humanize a brand and a cute animated mascot can really bring all the elements of a company's branding narrative to life. The Designmatic blog puts it this way, quote, statistics have shown that mascots are more effective than celebrity endorsers when it comes to connecting with the audience and also in terms of cost effectiveness. While every time a celebrity tweets to promote your brand can cost you anywhere from $5,000 to $60,000, mascot is a one-time expense and all you have to do is pay a designer once, and then the mascot is yours forever. The cherry on top, mascots don't age, retire, don't get themselves into embarrassing situations that can hurt your brand by extension, and they certainly don't ask for sudden vacations at crucial times, unquote. They also don't do time on federal charges for child porn, if you know what I'm saying. Hi, I'm Jared the Subway Guy, and this is my story. They really should have gone with an animated bread loaf. So it should come as no surprise that brands wanted their mascots and people love them. So why should they stop there? I mean, sure, there were all those activist groups that were getting all pissy about blatantly using characters like the Noid or Chester Cheetah in kids' cartoons that were designed before the shows came out to sell the product. So why not do an in run around that and create the kids cartoon first only to sell the toys that you already had planned? That is genius. And that is where I've been taking the show this entire week, setting up for next week, where we'll pick back up talking about how the 80s gave us 30 minute long toy commercials disguised as afternoon cartoons And we bought and bought and bought. (laughs) That is it for our show this week. First to admit, this uh, this week is a little choppy. It's a little weird. Had to go back into the office to my real job trademark for the first time in over a year. So finding my footing was a little awkward, particularly since I got a goddamn head cold from going into the office for the first time since the pandemic started. And now I sound like shit on the podcast. I mean, yeah, sitting at home, drinking in my underwear, drinking like a fish is bad but at least I'm not coughing and snorting. Speaking of coughing, snorting, and gagging, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods. It helps others find it, hear it, and start gagging in disgust at your awful taste in podcast. All of my snotty replies are on the social, the hell underscore podcast, or the show name on Facebook. Kick us a dollar on patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. 
get ad-free and early episodes, maybe that plushy Gavin dolls, who knows, and all of the anatomically correct Dave dolls are at whatthehellpodcast.com, and we are a proud member of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network, who's a very strict policy about coming into the studio when you might be remotely infectious because they know that I'm just going to sneeze all over Gavin's controls. So for me, Dave, time to make the donuts, Bledsoe. Producing, I've fallen and I can't get up. I don't know what that means. Gavin and all the fictional elves and Ernie's tree on the show, we want to say you can take part in the all-American dream. Just fill up your house with a million products you don't need. You don't even have to use them. Fine. That's all that's asked of you. And we'll see you all next week. stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.